What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Please be advised that this episode may have content that some listeners may find distressing. And it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 13. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of It's Murder Up North. First of all, I want to apologise to every one of you for the absence of new episodes the last couple of weeks. I was unfortunately unable to do any writing or recording due to a bout of migraines and vertigo. However, I do want to say a huge thank you for all your kind words and for your patience. For my podcast of the week, I would love to introduce you to Crimatorium. Here is a sneak peek. Crimatorium translates to a place where crime resides. The cases covered include, but are not limited to, murder, scams, abuse, missing persons, cold cases, old cases, new cases, and lesser-known cases. Crimatorium covers all of it worldwide. My fascination with true crime goes back to when I was a young girl Couple that fascination with my love of reading, writing, music, and storytelling. The transition to podcasting was a foregone conclusion. New episodes are released bi-weekly, with bonus episodes in between from time to time. Take the next step and listen to Crimatorium, and then subscribe via your favorite platform. Join me in the place where crime resides. Now, let's head to the episode. Daniel eagerly watched out of the window of the minibus as it approached his grandparents' home. But a look of disappointment filled his eyes when he noticed that his grandfather wasn't waiting at the end of the driveway. His gaze looked to the front window, where his grandmother would always be waiting for him, but her smiling face was absent. The teenager's carer, Fergus, had a feeling something was wrong, but not wanting to worry the boy, he instructed Daniel to wait in the vehicle. Fergus approached the house, but the front door was not open for him as it always was. Noting that the family car was on the driveway, he knew that the elderly couple had not gone out. Nor would they have, as they knew what time Daniel was to return home. Concerned, the carer rang the doorbell. When he received no response, he peered through the front window, knocking gently on the pane. 
but within the cosy living room there was no sign of Daniel's devoted grandparents. Heading to the rear of the house, Fergus approached the patio doors. Through the pattern in the net curtain, the carer could make out a silhouette. Leaning closer, he looked through the white lace and could just make out the figure of Robert Seddon. Seated on the sofa, his head bowed as though he was asleep. The carer tapped on the glass, but the elderly man didn't react. The grandfather had something in his hand, which caused the carer to step back from the window. Alarmed, he took out his phone and dialed 999. Fergus explained to the operator that he was a respite carer for a 17-year-old boy with learning difficulties and had been looking after the teenager for a couple of days to allow his grandparents some rest. Fergus proceeded to explain that he was concerned that he was unable to get an answer at the teenager's home, and that upon investigation he could see the boy's grandfather sat on the sofa, holding a gun. When the police forced entry to the home of Robert and Patricia Seddon, the front door opened into the hallway, the stairs to the left-hand side, the tube from a vacuum cleaner lying clumsily on the floor, beyond which lay the motionless body of 65-year-old Patricia Seddon. In the lounge at the rear of the home, they found her husband, 68-year-old Robert, with a sawn-off shotgun on his lap. His head tilted forward, so his chin rested upon his chest. The officer proceeded to check the elderly man's pulse, but found no sign of life. As the scene was cordoned off, investigators examined the house for clues. There was no sign of forced entry, and it did not appear as though a robbery had taken place. Considering these factors, investigators began to speculate that for some reason, Robert had shot his wife before turning the gun on himself. The next question they needed to answer was why. Robert Seddon was born in November 1943 to Joseph, who was a train driver, and Doris, who was a housewife. The family lived in Sale, in the northwest of England, on a pleasant tree-lined street, graced with semi-detached houses, which backed onto the Bridgewater Canal. In 1966, Robert married Patricia, and the couple got their first home on the Broomwood Estate in Timperley, a village that lies six miles away from the city of Manchester. It wasn't long before they welcomed their first child, Stephen, who was joined a year later by a little sister, Leslie. The household was a loving one. Robert and Patricia were devoted to their children and worked hard to ensure that Stephen and Leslie had everything they needed. The couple weren't rich, but from Robert's job at British Airways and Patricia working as a cleaner, they were able to provide a secure and comfortable environment for their family. Their world was transformed when their youngest child, Leslie, fell ill and began having episodes of uncontrollable shaking, stiffness and complained of strange feelings, smells and tastes. These included pins and needles in her arms and legs. At the age of seven, the little girl was diagnosed with epilepsy and her parents were informed that she would require constant care. The family adjusted to Leslie's condition by 1996, Stephen Seddon, the eldest child, had established his own business which had proven to be very successful and afforded him a life of luxury. He had also fallen in love with a girl called Nicola, whom he had met in a bar in Manchester 
and in August of 1996 the pair married. The couple relocated to Durham in the northeast of England, where they lived in a large home with expensive cars and enjoyed exotic holidays. His parents were naturally proud of their son's accomplishments. Now living in a semi-detached home in an affluent area of Sale, Robert and Patricia were overjoyed when in 1998 Leslie gave birth to her son Daniel. The new mum continued to live with her parents, who helped her to take care of her child. However, as Daniel got older, concerns were raised regarding his development and upon assessment, he was found to have severe learning difficulties. Tragedy would strike the family on the 7th of September 2008. Patricia was preparing breakfast, called for her family to join her and she was quickly accompanied by Daniel, who energetically bounded into the room and gave his grandma a big cuddle, before being ushered to the table. Shortly after, Robert entered the room. He kissed his wife on the cheek and sat in his chair with his newspaper in hand. But Leslie was absent. Patricia proceeded to the bottom of the stairs and called her daughter's name, but got no response. Ascending the stairs, she knocked on Leslie's bedroom door and listened, but there was a silent reply, with a lump in her throat and a nauseous feeling in her stomach. Patricia's shaking hand opened the door. The room was tranquil, with a soft light slipping through the closed curtains. Patricia drew back the curtains, allowing sunlight to flow into the room, revealing the slumbering silhouette of her daughter. But as Patricia reached out her hand to touch Leslie's pale skin, she already knew. Her fingertips touched her daughter's cold arm, as tears began to form in the mother's eyes. Leslie had passed away in her sleep. Robert and Patricia were devastated by the loss of their daughter, a loss that was hard to explain to her ten-year-old son Daniel, who, with a mental age of three, was unable to fully comprehend why his mother was no longer with them. Despite being in their sixties, Patricia and Robert became Daniel's legal guardians, and to help them provide their grandson with the care he needed, it was agreed that the ten-year-old would have a carer for a couple of days a week to give his grandparents some respite. It would be just four years later that the carer who had been assigned to look after Daniel would find the couple's dead bodies in their home on July 6th, 2012. As police began making inquiries in the local area, they learned from neighbours that Patricia and Robert were, quote, a quiet, unassuming, elderly and caring couple. Those who lived nearby noted that the couple stuck to a set routine and pointed out several things that were out of the ordinary with regards to that routine. The couple were known not to lock the back door. Yet when Fergus and the police arrived at the home, they found it secured. Patricia would always put her washing out on a Wednesday whilst Daniel was away. First her light clothes and then her darks. But upon retrieving the first load off the line, Patricia failed to hang out the second load of darts. Robert had also failed to put the rubbish bin out that Wednesday night, ready for collection on the Thursday morning, and the curtains in the house had remained drawn. Police were able to determine that from these accounts the couple had possibly been dead for a couple of days before being discovered. 
Needing to narrow down the timeline, investigators sought to discover what the couple had been doing prior to their deaths. They learned that on the 3rd of July, Robert had attended a doctor's appointment, and the elderly man was seen at about 5pm purchasing fish and chips. Although no one could recall seeing him after this, it was clear that the couple had been alive the following morning, as witnesses observed Patricia with her washing, and phone records showed that they had answered two calls, one with their son Stephen, and the other was from social services which had occurred at about half past twelve. The couple received another call at twenty past four that afternoon, however this one went unanswered, which led police to speculate that Robert and Patricia Seddon may have died between half past twelve and twenty past four on that Wednesday afternoon. The news outlets gathered comments from the neighbours. Duncan Stratham, who lived next to the elderly couple, stated, quote, They were fantastic people. They'd lived here for years and were always so kind with my kids and other kids on the street. It's a massive shock. They were such an ordinary, down-to-earth couple. You could never see them being involved in something like this. My heart just goes out to their family. We know them well and they are such a nice, unassuming family and I have no idea what they must be going through. A close friend of the couple, Carol McDermott, commented, quote, They'd had a fair amount of bad luck in recent years and I know Bob had been feeling down. They'd had a lifetime of bad luck over a very short period. It's all come as a complete shock. They were just lovely, mild-mannered people. You couldn't have asked for nice neighbours. They've always been here and everyone knew them on the street. And now suddenly this has happened. The concerns that Robert had been suffering from depression, which may have led him to end his and Patricia's lives, investigators contacted the 68-year-old's doctor to get an understanding of Robert Seddon's mental state. The couple's doctor confirmed that Robert was in poor health at the time of his death, advising that he was suffering from debilitating arthritis, had recently had a heart attack, was suffering from depression, which had been triggered by a car accident three months earlier, in which the car he had been travelling in had ended up crashing into the Bridgewater Canal. The doctor also advised that he was concerned for Robert's mental state. Following an appointment the 68-year-old had attended the day before his death, the doctor proceeded to disclose that during the appointment, Robert had raised concerns regarding his son Stephen, quote, he expressed his concern that it was his belief that his son had tried to kill him and his wife when he had driven the car into the canal. He gave a number of reasons for this belief. He was due to see his son later that day and he was intending to confront him about it, but no meeting appears to have taken place. Investigators took this new information and decided to investigate whether this was the paranoid utterances of a depressed man whether there was truth in Robert's suspicions. Stephen Seddon was tracked down to a small terraced house in Durham, where he was advised in person of his parents' deaths. The grief-stricken son collapsed to the floor upon hearing the news and began mourning and sobbing. Held to his feet by the officers, he then stated, quote, What am I going to do now? I'm going to lose the house. The mortgage is in my dad's name. 
The attending officers noted that this was an unusual reaction for someone who had just been advised that both his parents had been killed. The 46-year-old did not ask any questions regarding the deaths, nor did he inquire about his nephew, Daniel. Police brought Stephen in for questioning, during which he provided them with a detailed account of his movements on the day the murders had taken place. Stephen told investigators that on the 2nd of July, he and his wife Nicola had taken their three children to stay in a holiday caravan in the seaside town of Fleetwood, which lies roughly 140 miles from their home in the northeast town of Seaham. He continued to explain that on the Tuesday night, he remembered he needed to sign up for his job seeker's allowance at the job centre in Seaham, and saw in the early hours of the 4th of July, he drove the two-and-a-half-hour route back to his home, where he parked his car in the garage and decided to have a nap before his appointment, which was scheduled for 10 o'clock. When Stephen walked from his sleep, he noticed that his alarm hadn't sounded, and the screen on his clock was blank. It was in that moment that he remembered the letter he had received from the electric company, advising that there would be a scheduled power cut on his street. He quickly dressed, and headed to the garage, where he came to the realisation that he would not be able to open the electric garage door, due to the power outage, which left him without a car. Knowing he couldn't afford to be late for his appointment at the job centre, Stephen claimed that he ran all the way there, arriving late and out of breath. He then ran a couple of errands, including withdrawing some money from an ATM machine, and doing some shopping. He then headed home, rang his parents, and then at about half past six, he went to a local retail park with a family member before returning home, where he found the power had been restored. He then proceeded to make the journey back to Fleetwood, stopping for fuel and some cans of beer on the way. This alibi meant that Stephen was 140 miles away from the crime scene at the time the deaths were believed to have occurred. However, that didn't stop investigators looking into the details of Stephen's claims. As investigations continued, police were building a clearer picture of how Mr and Mrs Seddon had died. Ballistic experts examined the scene and determined that both victims had been shot at close range with a sawn-off shotgun. Analysing the evidence presented, police surmised that Patricia Seddon had been cleaning in the hallway when she was attacked. The 65-year-old's body showed signs of defensive wounds, which suggested that she had attempted to fight off her attacker. However, the assailant was able to wrestle Patricia to the floor, and as she lay there, the gun was held to her temple and fired. It was also clear from the information that had been gathered that this could not have been a murder-suicide, as the ballistic experts claimed that it would have been impossible for Robert Seddon to have inflicted the wound to his neck, primarily due to the fact that his arms were not long enough to hold the weapon in the position required. It was estimated that the deadly shot was fired from a distance of approximately a metre and a half away. They also argued that it was strange to find the gun lying upon the victim's lap, as the force of the recoil would have cast the gun away from the man's grip. Investigators were also able to determine from the trajectory of the shot and blood evidence that Robert had been in the process of standing up when he was shot. 
For the police, the evidence ruled out the possibility that Robert had murdered Patricia before turning the gun on himself. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Robert eliminated as a suspect, the police continued to investigate the son's alibi and possible motives for murdering his own parents. It was clear that Stephen had come from a loving family, and he had received a comfortable upbringing, with his parents being able to provide him with a good childhood. However, when Stephen entered his teens, he began to get into trouble with the law. He began to burgle properties and would steal cars, just for fun. His doting parents were dismayed by their son's behaviour. They had raised him to be respectful and well-mannered, and never dreamed he would be involved in criminality. Robert and Patricia were believed when Stephen changed his ways. He settled down, married Nicola, and had started his business with a friend, which proved to be very successful. The company worked to acquire European funding grants for small businesses across England. Stephen and his business partner would offer to source the grants for the businesses, handling the process on their behalf for a fee of £300. Within a couple of years, the business was in profit and afforded Stephen a luxury lifestyle. He purchased a Bentley, a Porsche, a yacht and a luxury home, and he was able to take his family away on expensive holidays. To his parents, Stephen had turned his life around and was living the dream but Robert and Patricia's pride in their son would turn to disappointment when Trading Standards investigated Stephen's business in 1999. It was discovered that there was no European funding grants and the business was built on fraudulent activities in which the company would take the £300 payment and keep it without doing anything. More than 14,000 companies were conned by Seddon's scheming with their combined losses estimated at over £5 million. Many of these were small shops, hotels and other businesses, for whom the financial losses would have had a detrimental impact on their ability to continue trading. Trading standards began receiving complaints back in the mid-1990s regarding UK Business Grants Limited and European Business Support Limited, for which Seddon was either a director or acted as a managing director. These companies employed a small group of salespeople who would cold call various businesses, offering them the opportunity to apply for grants. However, Trading Standards learned that none of these salespeople received any training regarding the application process, and it quickly became apparent that no applications were ever submitted. When Stephen appeared in court in 2000 for fraud, it was revealed that he had previous offences for deceit, theft and burglary. The proceeds from his con had been used to fund an extravagant lifestyle and helped pay for his wedding to Nicola. The judge, David Bryant, in determining Stephen's sentence, reflected that his victims had been businesses, 
rather than those who were elderly or vulnerable. He was being convicted of a fraudulent trading, rather than theft, which would have carried a more severe prison term. And the fact Stephen admitted his guilt led to him being given a reduced sentence of one year. He was also banned from holding a directorial or management position for ten years, and had many of his ill-gained assets seized. When Stephen left prison, he was able to find work in sales, but he struggled to stay employed. And when he was sacked from yet another job, he turned to his parents for help, and they were willing to help him. Stephen had lost the home he had purchased with his illicit earnings, and needing somewhere to live, Robert and Patricia remortgaged their own house to provide a home for their son, daughter-in-law, and their three children. Over the following years, Stephen became increasingly reliant on his parents for financial support as he struggled to provide for his family on the benefits he was receiving. In 2008, when his sister Leslie passed away, Stephen was informed that his parents had amended their will, naming him as the sole beneficiary and Daniel's legal guardian in the event of both their deaths. This to police would definitely have been a motive for murder, and as officers delved further, they discovered that Stephen was in a dire financial situation, which made him their prime suspect. But how had Stephen been able to carry out the murders when he was over a hundred miles away from the crime scene, a fact that had been corroborated by his phone records, which showed him in Siam all day, during which time he had answered two calls? and the job centre confirmed that Stephen had attended his appointment that day. It had been noted on his account that he had been late due to a power cut at his home. It was, however, the trip to the job centre that would begin the unravelling of Stephen's alibi. It was indeed true that he had arrived at his appointment late and out of breath, a fact that staff and CCTV confirmed. However, the security cameras captured something else. Almost out of view of the camera, a black car is seen pulling up into a side street, 200 yards away from the job centre. And a couple of minutes later, a figure is captured running towards the building. This figure was identified as Stephen Seddon. Following the appointment, Stephen is seen heading back towards the car, and a couple of minutes after he disappears from view, the black car is seen exiting the side street. Intrigued as to whether this was just a coincidence, or whether Stephen had been the driver of the vehicle, police sought to find other surveillance footage from the area, and they got a break, when they tracked down a bus that had been passing at the time. Unfortunately, when they received the bus footage, they found they were unable to identify who had been driving the car, but they were able to get a clearer image of the make and model of the vehicle, and determined it was a black BMW. Working on this information, investigators decided to see whether Seddon would have had access to this vehicle. They tracked down Seddon's brother-in-law, who owned a car matching that description, and when he was questioned, he revealed that he had loaned his car to Stephen on the morning of the 4th of July. After being informed that Stephen's car was stuck in the garage due to a power cut, and he needed to be at an appointment by 10am. Knowing now that Stephen actually had access to a vehicle, it became more conceivable that he may have been able to make the journey to his parents' house in Sale, 
Having checked Stephen's alibi, investigators found more surveillance footage that showed his movements around Seaham. He was seen at a supermarket and an ATM machine, but there was a gap in the timeline Stephen had provided, during which he claimed he was at home, and his phone records proved it. But when the people involved in the calls were contacted, police learned that one had been from a money lender with whom Stephen had requested a callback for Wednesday afternoon. Fortunately for investigators, the conversation had been recorded, and when Stephen's voice was compared with the one on the recording, it did not match. With a clearer window of when the murders took place, police were able to determine that Stephen's unaccounted for hours corresponded with when the crime was likely to have occurred, and that it appeared as though he had arranged for someone else to answer his calls during this time to create an alibi. They now attempted to prove that Stephen had been at his parents' home during Dale's missing hours. To do this, they attempted to track the car which Seddon had access to that day. Investigators resorted to data collected by the automatic number plate recognition system, which identified the vehicle travelling towards Manchester. This helped them to determine the route Seddon would have taken. Having conducted door-to-door inquiries and collected surveillance footage from homes and businesses in the area surrounding Mr and Mrs Seddon's home on Clough Avenue, the investigators made another breakthrough, as once again CCTV would provide them with a vital lead. The footage had come from a shop situated on Manor Avenue, which was on the route to the crime scene, and it revealed a black BMW heading in the direction of Clough Avenue at 25 minutes to 2. The same vehicle was then seen heading in the opposite direction at 3 minutes past 2, which fell within the time the murders were believed to have occurred. With the evidence stacked against him, Stephen was charged on the 12th of July 2012, and his trial was held at Manchester Crown Court on the 20th of February 2013, where he stood accused of two counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. The jury were informed that Stephen had been unemployed since October 2011 and was in a dire financial situation. With prosecutor Peter Wright QC arguing that Stephen had murdered his parents to collect an inheritance worth £230,000, stating, quote, He had money problems and an insatiable thirst for cash. He was the sole beneficiary of their will but in order to inherit, he needed them both dead. The prosecution emphasised that Stephen placed his need for money above the lives of Robert and Patricia, who would have done anything to help their son. It was highlighted that on numerous occasions, the devoted parents had provided Stephen with financial support. They helped him pay his bills, remortgaged their home to help purchase a £90,000 terraced house in Seaham for Stephen and his family, with Robert contributing towards the monthly mortgage payments. And just days before they were murdered, Robert had even paid a £60 speeding fine that Stephen had been issued. To prove that Seddon was motivated by financial gain, a family behavioural manager from the school Stephen's 13-year-old son attended took to the witness stand. Leanne Kennedy advised that due to the teenager having issues at school, a meeting had been arranged in May to discuss a course of action. She explained that during this meeting, 
Stephen made reference to a substantial inheritance he was going to receive. Quote, he said he was due to come into some money and he'd be able to sort his son out. Later on he said the money was due to come from an inheritance and it was a lot of money and he would use it to reward his son if he behaved at school. It was brought to the attention of the jury that Robert had confided in his doctor regarding an incident that had occurred in March, which he suspected had not been an accident at all. The 68-year-old had told the doctor he had believed his son had deliberately crashed the car they were travelling in into the Bridgewater Canal and advised that he planned to confront Stephen regarding his suspicions. But by the following day, Robert and Patricia had been murdered. The incident Robert referred to had occurred on March the 20th, 2012, as Stephen was taking his parents and nephew out for a belated Mother's Day meal. However, as they drove along a road which ran parallel with the Bridgewater Canal, Stephen lost control of the vehicle and it veered into the cold, murky waters. In the days that followed, the 46-year-old provided numerous interviews discussing what had happened, pausing for pictures with his parents and the emergency services, and playing down his heroic deeds. Stephen provided the news outlets with a detailed account of the harrowing events, describing how the car plunged into the canal, how he was able to smash the window with a steering wheel lock as water began to flood into the cabin. He proceeded to describe how he climbed onto the car and jumped on the passenger window until it shattered, allowing his nephew Daniel to escape. His father was also able to clamber out of the sinking vehicle, but his mother was trapped. He told a local newspaper that when firefighters arrived, they took over the rescue. He described, quote, By now the car was submerged, with water up to my mum's neck. They had just seconds to get her out. I don't know how they managed to pull her out of that small window. Thankfully, I had got Daniel and my dad out, because there was no way they would have been able to get four of us out in time. They were able to concentrate on getting my mother out. He continued by modestly stating, quote, The real heroes are the firefighters. They were fantastic, just amazing. His mother Patricia had to be resuscitated on the canal bank and spent three days in hospital. When she spoke to the local press, she stated, quote, I just thought my number was up. It was so frightening, but there was not a lot I could do. I think I froze. At the time, the incident was deemed to be an accident, and police decided not to investigate it further. A spokesman for Greater Manchester Police advised, quote, At the time of the incident, there was no evidence or witnesses to suggest that Seddon had attempted to take the lives of his parents. This was classed as a road traffic accident. Therefore, it would not have been appropriate in this case to refer it to the Independent Police Complaints Commission. However, after Seddon's arrest for murder, the original incident was voluntarily referred to the Professional Standards Branch for further inquiries. This found there was no issues with the original investigation. Following the murders, and with Robert having raised concerns in the days prior to his death, an investigation into the crash was opened. They found there were several inconsistencies in Stephen's version of events. He stated to officers on the night that he had experienced chest pains and had passed out. However, when he was taken to hospital, 
Tests indicated he had no issues with his heart, but doctors stated that this could not rule out the possibility of a cardiac event. Stephen blamed the accident on his car hitting a brick, which had caused him to lose control, but nothing was found at the scene to corroborate this claim, and experts stated it was, quote, highly improbable that a brick would have been the cause of the accident. Other claims made by Seddon included hitting a pothole, the wheels impacting the curb, and he also suggested that he applied the accelerator instead of the brake. When assessing the scene, it became apparent that the point at which the car had entered the water was the only stretch of road where there was no barrier present. Prosecutor Mr Wright pointed out that Stephen just happened to have a pocket knife on him, which allowed him to cut the seatbelt and that there was a steering wheel lock close at hand for him to smash the window, adding that due to the age of the vehicle, it had a built-in immobiliser, so the steering lock would have not been required. The vehicle itself had been a hire car, and it transpired that Stephen had insured it against accidental damage, which would have resulted in a large payout. It was also revealed that Robert had told the doctor that he had discovered Stephen had recorded a TV show which featured a segment on how to escape from a car submerged in water. The court heard statements from witnesses to the accident, one being Ruth Carroll, who noticed a car coming towards her at speed. She recalled, quote, At the time, I thought it might be joyriders. Just the speed. The light sort of went off to my left, and I saw the side of the vehicle, then it seemed to go up and into the canal. She advised how she called 999 before making her way towards the scene, continuing, quote, I saw some people standing on the canal bank. There was the car, and then I saw somebody sat on top of the car, who appeared to be kicking backwards at the car, shouting, Help me, please, help me. Ruth commented on the conditions that night, highlighting that although it was dark, visibility was good, the ground was dry and there was no sign of any obstructions or debris on the road. Another witness, Elliot Fox, testified that he saw Stephen standing on the vehicle and he was jumping up and down on it. Elliot recalled shouting at the man on the car to get off as he was making it sink quicker. Mr Wright summed up the incident to the jury, quote, Mr Seddon was portrayed as a hero and he was happy to perpetuate this myth. The accolades did little to alleviate his financial problems. He needed to resort to more severe methods to bring about their deaths, which was not a terrible tragedy, but rather a double murder at the hands of an ungrateful son. Stephen Seddon took to the stand in his defence. He was asked about the car accident and provided the following statement, quote, To my knowledge, I was going down the hill and towards the bridge, and I saw headlights coming towards me. I think I moved to the left, and before I know it, then I think I moved to the left, and before I knew it, the next thing is I'm in the canal. We hit something. It felt like a big bang. I didn't know whether that was a curbside or a brick. I don't know. He alleged that he felt pain in his chest, which he believed in retrospect had been a panic attack. He recalled his dad shouting, quote, "We are in the water." He then described the wave of chaos and panic that took over the passengers in the car. His defence, Barrister Mr Hedworth. 
asked Stephen, quote, The driving of that car into the canal. Was that a deliberate act? Stephen responded, No. The barrister then asked, Did you desire to kill your parents? Stephen replied, No. I would never hurt my parents. Contrary to what he had told the police during interviews, Seddon admitted to being in Manchester. With regards to the with regards to the murders of his parents. When asked about the murders of his parents, contrary to what he had told the police during interviews, Seddon admitted to being in Manchester on the day of the murders, but claimed that he did not kill his parents. Instead, he stated he had been transporting narcotics. He told the court that a holdall was delivered to his house and he was provided with an address where it was to be delivered. He advised, quote, I never looked in the carrier bag. It was quite obvious what it was. Drugs. Upon arriving in Manchester, he handed the bag over and in exchange he was given another bag, which he had to return to see him where another man would collect it from him. He refused to name those involved in the deal, stating, quote, Operating in that league with those people. You don't mention names, it could get you killed. Mr. Hedworth, the defence barrister, asked, quote, Did you have anything to do with the murders of your parents? To which Seddon retorted, quote, Absolutely not. My parents loved me and I loved my parents. They would do anything for me. During the trial, it was revealed that there was an unusual car trip. During the trial, it was revealed that there was an unused cartridge left in the gun. The prosecution put forward the argument that Stephen had intended to use the bullet on 17-year-old Daniel. When this accusation was put to the defendant, he responded assertively, quote, "That's a sick thing to say." About a sick, that's a sick thing to say about a disabled child. You are sick. He proceeded to refer to the car accident in which he claimed he rescued Daniel. Quote, the one I, the one I nearly died, the one I nearly died saving. You don't even know him. You are making statements about a disabled child. Sick assumptions that I would want to kill a disabled child. You are sick. In closing arguments, Peter Wright QC summed up the case against Stephen Seddon, quote, At the time of these murders, he had money problems, and what you may conclude was an insatiable thirst for cash. He was the sole beneficiary of their wills, but in order to inherit, he needed them both dead. They had each been shot at close range with a sawn-off shotgun, in the immediate aftermath of these executions, the killer had taken steps to make it look as if the person responsible was in fact Robert Seddon. The person responsible not only wanted rid of Robert and Patricia Seddon, he wanted to lay a false trail. A trail he hoped would lead away rather than towards a man with a considerable motive to kill these two people. That man was their son, the defendant Stephen Seddon. Seddon was accused of laying a false trail by staging the murders to make it look as though his father had shot his mother before killing himself. No assassin would need to stage a false suicide 
if they were carrying out a gangland execution. The only reason would be to take attention away from the person responsible. The ballistic, ex- the ballistic evidence in this case is entirely inconsistent with that having taken place. The killer had fired, the killer had fired the left-hand barrel, reloaded, fired it again, and left an undischarged cartridge in the right-hand barrel. The prosecutor insinuated that this bullet had been intended. The prosecutor insinuated that the bullet had been because the killer had anticipated three people being in the house: Robert, Patricia, and Daniel. He reminded the jury that Seddon had attempted to create an airtight alibi, which involved his own wife and children whom he had ensured were conveniently away at the family caravan in Fleetwood. He acquired the weapon from someone who had been convicted previously for firearm offences. Stephen took advantage of the scheduled power outage to make it appear as though he had no access to a vehicle. He used his appointment at the job centre to corroborate his claims that he had been in Siam on the day of the murder. He attempted to perpetuate this idea by leaving his phone with a relative and relied on being captured on CCTV to further strengthen his claim. However, it was CCTV that would also be his downfall. When police had pieced together footage they had acquired, they were able to create a different version of events, which revealed that Stephen had access to a car, he had travelled to Manchester in that vehicle, and that this car was seen one street away from the crime scene. The prosecutor reminded the jury that Stephen had attempted to murder his parents in March 2012 and in July he had succeeded. Following the murder, Robert and Patricia lay undiscovered for two days and Stephen attempted to place the blame for the deaths on his own father. When he was arrested, he insisted he was innocent, refused to answer certain questions and accused officers of trying to frame him. In closing, Prosecutor Wright stated, quote, The evidence presents a compelling picture which demonstrates overwhelmingly the single conclusion that Stephen Seddon determined his parents needed to die. Having decided they must do so, he embarked upon a course of actions which led to their murder, and eventually this courtroom. After being presented with all the evidence and hearing the arguments from both sides, the jury spent 18 hours in deliberation. Upon their return to the courtroom, they declared that they had found Stephen Seddon guilty of all counts. In summing up, Mr Justice Hamblin stated, quote, Stephen Seddon, you are being convicted of heinous crimes, first attempting to murder your parents, and then, less than four months later, actually murdering them. A continuum of crimes culminating in the cold-blooded killing of a quiet, unassuming elderly couple in their own home, murdered at the hands of their own son. The earlier attempt to murder them was made on the 20th of March 2012, when you drove a hired BMW into the Bridgewater Canal, with your parents installed in the back seats of the locked vehicle. The jury have found that was done deliberately, and with intent to kill them. The attempt had been carefully planned. You had hired a car rather than using your own, you had taken the trouble of ensuring the excess of the hire car. You took the precaution of taking a crew clock with you so that you could make good your own escape. You had a knife with you in case of need. 
on the pretense of taking your mother for a belated Mother's Day evening meal, you drove down a route you would not normally take. It ran alongside the Bridgewater Canal and was largely without barriers. You drove at speed and at a point where the embankment was clear of trees and shrubbery, you deliberately drove the car into the dark canal. Using crook lock, you got yourself out of the car. The plan had no doubt been to make unsuccessful efforts to save your parents. However, a number of people were now on the bank side, and your actions or inactions were in full view. You decided you had no alternative but to be seen to try to save your passengers. Your parents not only had to endure a terrifying, life-threatening experience, they also suffered consequent sleeplessness, nightmares, depression and stress. As time went on, your father began to suspect that his own son had in fact tried to kill him that March night, and he confided these suspicions in his GP the day before he was murdered. The reason for the attempted murders and the murders was greed. You needed money. You had lost your job. You had a mortgage. You had a family to support. You had some grand plans. Despite the fact that your parents had always been very generous in supporting you, you wanted more and you wanted it now. Hence the plan to kill them and get your inheritance up front. The attempted murder having failed, you decided on the more ruthless and definitive method of killing. You went to your parents' house in Sale, where you shot them in cold blood and at point-blank range with a sawn-off shotgun. They died instantly. Your father was shot from a range of one and a half metres as he sat on the sofa in the living room. Your mother was shot as she was lying on the floor in the hallway. The gun was held to her left temple and much of her face was blown away. You then tried to make it look as if your father had killed your mother and then himself. The gun was left placed across your father's lap in a staged murder-suicide. You were in and out on your murderous business in little more than 15 minutes. In Greek mythology, someone who killed a parent would be pursued until death by the Furies. Throughout time, it has been recognised as a terrible and unnatural crime. You have killed not one parent, but both of them. You have done so for gain. You have done so having first tried unsuccessfully to kill them by other means. You have done so by the barbaric act of shooting them at point-blank range with a sawn-off shotgun. In effect, you executed your own parents. One can only imagine the horror of your parents' last moments in this life, when they realised what a monster their own son, who they loved, had become. Mercifully, their deaths were swift. I have considered the victims' personal statements submitted by members of Robert and Patricia's Seddon's family, which speaks of their loss, the impact on Daniel's life, and movingly describe Robert and Patricia's lives and characters they were devoted parents and grandparents. For the crime of murder, there is a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment. However, I need to determine whether this is a case in which there should be a whole life order. In other words, a sentence which means that you will never leave prison, or a sentence of a minimum term in prison. Whole life orders are reserved for the offences of exceptionally high seriousness. The prosecution submits that this is such a case because it involved the murder of two persons 
and of substantial degree of premeditation and planning. I accept that it has these features. However, the statutory provisions are not to be applied inflexibly, and all the circumstances of the case need to be taken into account in order to decide whether a whole life order is required. It is submitted on your behalf that a minimum term order would meet the justice of the case. This is because this is a case which has three of the features that would be categorised as a case of particularly high seriousness, namely murder involving use of a firearm, murder for gain and murder of two people. In addition, some of the statutory aggravating features are present, namely a significant degree of planning or premeditation, an element of abuse of trust, and an element of victim vulnerability due to their age and health. Further, this case involves not just the murder of two people, but also their attempted murders. If those attempts had been successful, it would have been a case that in itself merits a determinate sentence of 20 years. In terms of mitigating factors, the only one which is applicable is age. Courts may, in appropriate cases, take age into account, so that there is at least the possibility of a light at the end of the tunnel. Age is just one factor to be borne in mind as part of the sentencing process, but it is not determinative of the finishing point. In mitigation, aside from your age, the main point urged is the lack of recent serious convictions and the absence of any convictions for violence against the person. I am satisfied that this is a case which involves offending, of such seriousness that a whole life sentence would be justifiable. However, I recognise that such an order is very rarely made and that it remains a sentence of last resort. On balance, having regard in particular to your antecedent history and all that is known about you, I have concluded that a minimum term sentence will provide sufficient just punishment and retribution. If a long minimum term is imposed, there will therefore be light at the end of the tunnel, but it will be a very faint light. In all the circumstances, having full regard to your age and the mitigation urged on your behalf, I concluded that the appropriate minimum term is one of 40 years, end quote. Following the conclusion of the trial, a statement was released on behalf of Robert and Patricia's family, quote, The past nine months have been a very sad and emotional time for our family. The shock of having both Pat and Bob taken from us in such horrific and tragic circumstances has left us feeling numb. Pat and Bob were a kind, loving and selfless couple, who would be missed by their family and friends, and especially their grandson, Daniel, whom they cared for with great love and affection. Stephen Seddon will be eligible for parole in 2052 at the age of 86. It is possible that he will die behind bars, so he is effectively serving a life sentence. But like with many cases I have covered, just because the killer is behind bars, doesn't mean that those affected by the crime are free from trauma. There is one person in particular who has been hurt the most by Seddon's actions, and that is his nephew Daniel, who at 17 had the mental understanding of a three-year-old. He had suffered the loss of his mother just four years earlier, and because of his uncle, he has now been robbed of his grandparents, who had helped to raise him, provide for him, and give him a sense of security. 
Thank you for joining me for episode 42 of It's Murder Up North. Episode 43 will be available next week. So in the meantime, keep an eye on those shadows. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.